Christians have a love-hate relationship with the Christmas holiday. In part because our experience tells us, along with religious opponents and antagonists, uh, these things remind us that Christianity has always seemed to be this confluence, this merger, this combination of that which is distinctly Christian and that which seems to be also commercially cultural, sometimes even pagan. No matter how much we emphasize that Jesus is the reason for the season, we have to contend with the fact that since its origin, this thing we call Christmas, around December 25th, it's always been entangled and cluttered with the things of men when it's really not about men at all, it's about the things of God. History goes back some uh, to to the like 4th century, mid-4th century AD when Uh, around the time when Constantine was getting his grip on the Roman Empire and seeking to Christianize it, this idea that he was going to allow Christians to sort of flex their dominance on a emperor-wide level. And there was a time when a bishop in Jerusalem asked the bishop in Rome what was the exact date of our Lord's birth. Well, no one knows the exact date. We're wishy-washy on the exact year. But what happened was the bishop at Rome recognized that during December in that area, in that era, it was one of the most pagan times of the year because it was dark, it was dreary. Uh, there were people who partied in anticipation of the spring when life would sort of reemerge from the depths of winter and, and, and people would just do all manner of, uh, of orgies and parties. They started doing gift swapping. Uh, they started doing bringing in evergreen trees and decorating their houses in anticipation for the time when life would reemerge. And so the, 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 the bishop said, I guess maybe I ought to tell them that it happened on December 25th so that we could make what Christ does eclipse what culture does and maybe we'll put a, a stifling to the culture by putting an emphasis on Christ. Of course, as you know, paganism didn't miss a beat. The cultural norms did not slack. And eventually, the church who had already adopted December 25th as an acceptable date to commemorate the birth of Jesus Christ began to welcome and even participate many of the very cultural peripheral things that they had once frowned upon. In other words, the goal of making Christmas December 25th and making it about the birth of Christ, even though that clearly was not the actual birth of Christ, was well-intentioned in some sense. But it never escaped being eclipsed or having to wrestle with the cultural. The Christian seems to always give way to the cultural. In our context today, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20 is a time where Luke's gospel wants you to know that they didn't call it Christmas. 
There was a time when God stepped into human history. It wasn't called Christmas. There was a time we don't know the exact date. We don't even know the exact year. But what we know is exactly what happened. That one day God burst forth into human history, stepped in out of eternity into time and made himself known. Luke 1, 8, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 80 says that John the Baptist was his forerunner. And we get a little closing verse about Luke's gospel. It says, uh, from Luke's gospel, it says, the child grew, talking about John the Baptist, strong in spirit. He was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. And basically, John, he exits stage left and Jesus takes center stage. On a night unlike any other night, on a night like any other night, it's sort of both. It kind of was a, light, a night unlike any other night, and yet, if you would have been there, it would have appeared to be a night like any other night. There was an event unlike any other event. And there was a child unlike any other child that was born. For many, this story of Jesus is peripheral to their presence. For many, this story in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, is marginal compared to Christmas music. For many, this story is cap. It's just a fairy tale. It's a legend. It's just something that people make up. But for Luke, it is the glorious tale of the what we call the incarnation, the enfleshment of God, that the creator who breathed into us the breath of life decided that he would become like us in order to redeem us. Luke documents that in this text today. So we want you to see God in it, the birth of Christ, the incarnation, God taking on flesh, stepping into history and playing by the rules as though it were. See the God in it. See the gospel in it. And then see, sing, and spread the glory of it. First, see God in it. See God in it. And you want to see several things about God. One, see his sovereignty. His sovereignty. Verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town let's stop I want you to see something about the sovereignty of God in making this moment happen where the Lord Jesus would be born like he was born when he was born where he was born and why he was born First of all, it starts off in those days, very general. In those days, what days? The days he's been talking about. He's been talking about John and John's uh, birth. He's been talking about the days that Jesus lived, historical days, days you could trace back if you were doing history, days that are actual, not legendary, days that are actual and historical, not just fiction. The days where a man named Herod was an Edomite king who was allowed because of Rome to sort of have jurisdiction over Judea. 
The days when Rome was in control of everything at that time, the then known world, where Rome had consolidated power under this man named Caesar Augustus. These days, in those days when Augustus was was popping, in those days when he was the sovereign monarch, before Caesar Augustus was the exclusive monarch, it was ruled by three. He shared the, the, the rule, but now it's under one sovereign monarch in those days. He gets to decree a census that affects the then known world at the time. He gets to, with the sovereign stroke of a pen, declare, everybody do what I say. (laughs) Isn't it interesting that God is actually sovereign over the kingdom's sovereigns? That God shows up where there is a sovereign and shows himself to be more sovereign. Caesar Augustus is really Gaius Octavius who was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar adopted him as his own when he was 20, and so he inherited the throne after Caesar's death. He was given the title Caesar, so Caesar is sort of like a title like Pharaoh again. So Caesar, it became his name, but really Caesar was just a title, and he was Augustus. Augustus meant revered one. Augustus was a way of talking about him as exalted. So he was the exalted Caesar of his day. Octavian was the exalted sovereign of his day. And that's what the text shows us. In those days, a decree went out that affected everyone. So influential was this Caesar Augustus in those days is that he was tagged the savior of the world. You want to know why? Because it was under this Caesar that we get what some have called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. The fact that all throughout the Roman Empire, there was unprecedented peace. You could walk down roads and not be afraid because they were so ruthless in keeping peace that no one dared disturb the peace. It was in those days that they put out the Roman roads under this, under this sovereign. There were roads that could take things, postal routes. You could travel. You could go places. I mean, people like the fact, man, I'm so glad we can travel now, unlike ways that we've ever been able to travel before. It was under this one. Not only that, he's the one that sort of, sort of brought under, like gave people the ability to sort of do their own thing, which is why the Jews were able to run their own affairs. And the Jews could run their own affairs because he made it a climate so that there was religious freedom as though it were. He establishes peace. He establishes, he even expanded the borders of Rome. So from everyone's like perspective, this Caesar was a Caesar unlike any other Caesar in the sense that now we're looking at a Caesar who's got all power in his hand, and he was tagged the savior of the world, the one who brought about peace. So now we get a sovereign who brings about peace and who actually is called savior, and it's against that backdrop that we hear about another one who's called one who brings in peace another one who is referred to as sovereign another one who is the one that everyone called this imposter the true sovereign and the true savior was coming into the world in those days 
And what the text wants you to know is what he does is actually play right into the sovereign's hand. Like Nebuchadnezzar, he is just a sovereign who's under sovereignty. Like Cyrus, who was used to bring God's people out of exile back into the Lamb, this one is going to be used to take Joseph and Mary, the mother and surrogate father of the Lord Jesus, and get them out of Nazareth to a place called Bethlehem. We'll talk about why. Through a decree, he says, you need to get registered. There was two reasons why you got registered, either for military or for taxation. The Jews were exempt from serving military purposes in Rome's government. And so they were there to be taxed. God used the mandate of taxation to do something to position the one who would bring forth his son. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. On the night when Jesus would be born, this business trip, it had a small window. They had to go and be registered. They didn't just go and just have friends and family. Though they went to Bethlehem, you're going to see because they were in an inn, they were looking for lodging, that they didn't go back to a place they knew. They didn't go back to a place where we'll just hang up, we'll just, we'll just sort of stay up in some, some, some place of comfort. No, they had a small window to get there and to get out. So that means that God was sovereignly maneuvering so that they would be there so that they would give birth the time that they needed to give birth. I'm just talking about seeing God in this and seeing a God who is sovereign in this. But not only is he sovereign, you see his mercy and his veracity. Oh, verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. See mercy. First of all, God has already been merciful to the small. God has already been merciful to those that people would overlook. He says here that he was from a, a place called Bethlehem. If you know anything about Bethlehem, Bethlehem, according to Micah 5.2, you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, used to be called Ephrata. Now it's called Bethlehem, but to let you know, this is Bethlehem that used to be called Ephrata. Bethlehem, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, Bethlehem. For God to have anything to do with Bethlehem is an act of mercy. It's an act of compassion. There was nothing about Bethlehem that commended itself to Yahweh's attention. And yet, the merciful God says, from you will come a ruler for me. Now, it already happened before. A one named David came from Bethlehem. That's how Bethlehem got his clout, because the greatest king of Israel came from Bethlehem. But 300 years after David, 700 years before this night that we're talking about, God promised that a ruler would come, and look what it says. It says, to come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. In other words, Jesus would come on earth, and he would be the one who comes from back in the days, <laughs> and his reign would be for all days. In other words, he said, don't worry, Bethlehem, I know you're small, but I'm merciful. I stoop down and I bestow my kindness on people who other people overlook. He's merciful. But if he promised this, he's got to do it. What would make a man in Nazareth almost 90 miles away 
when his wife is clearly about to give birth, have to go. God had to maneuver because God will not be a liar. God knew how to move heaven and earth. God knew how to use a sovereign in his decree of taxation to get Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem so that from Bethlehem could come the ruler from old, whose kingdom will never have an end. In other words, here we are looking at God, the merciful, God, the true, and God, the sovereign, working it, working it for his namesake. I think this is a good word for us today. Here's the application. Bosses are powerful, but they're under the all-powerful. Doctors are powerful. They have clout. Their words matter, but they're under the one whose word is sovereign. Presidents, Republican or Democrat, dictator or autocrat, they got some juice, but he's got all juice, Kids, even your parents, yes, we get the flex every now and then, say, because I said so. But guess what? There's a God who tells us, because I said so. In recessions, in rejection, no matter what your circumstance, there is a God who is in it. And he is moving it. And he is working it for his own purposes and for your good because he's merciful and he's trustworthy. So you see his sovereignty, you see his veracity, and you see his mercy, but you also see his humility. Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The glorious incarnation that we're talking about today is a paradox because this looks like an inglorious setting for such a glorious one. Seems inglorious. She gave birth to her firstborn. To be the firstborn, if you come from the line of Judah, meant that you had the regal rights, meaning you were in line to be king. So the Lord Jesus is a king with the regal rights, and yet, look at him. He finds himself in a place that doesn't look like the Ritz-Carlton. It looks like Motel 8. We see him, the divine one, clothed in flesh. That's the first stoop. Now we see the one who's going to be clothed in swaddling cloths. That's a greater stoop. Oh, he swaddled. This is a cloth meant to keep your bones straight. So really, this was a way of showing you that the Lord Jesus needed the human development process like the rest of us. He's God who gave life. He's God who created man from the dust. And yet when he becomes like us, he humbles himself and he goes through the same process we have to go through. Oh, the Bible makes clear that this is the majestic one who's found in a manger. They put him in an animal trough. It says because there was no room in the inn. Now, I used to, like all the nativity scenes, kind of envision that he was in a small little inn, you know, like an Airbnb type thing, you know. Uh, maybe that the Lord Jesus went. It's one of those small inns where you kind of ring a bell when you come in. Ding, hi, you got any rooms? And they didn't have any rooms, so they were out in the cold looking for something and went off to a garage. That's not the picture. An inn in this day was really just a wide open space, like a shelter where there's just all kinds of people there with little different stalls and a place for your animals. So they went to the local place where you would go, where everyone would be around, and the only place for them, since there was no room in this inn, even if it was a small home, it was still shared by many families, and there would be a place for animals. So the Lord Jesus writes himself into the story, and he writes himself into the story 
where he doesn't go to a place of comfort or even rig it so that it's a nice, comfortable place for a nice, easygoing birth. No, Mary goes to a place away from home. Mary goes to a place where it's not private. Mary goes to a place where it's not comfortable. Mary goes to a place where when Jesus is out her womb, leaves the womb and comes into the world, she wraps him in cloth. And then she says, where can I put my baby? Oh, Mary, did you know your baby had to be placed in a feeding trough where the animals used to feed because there was just that little room where they were. We're just talking about the God who humbles himself, who stoops down and condescends. The sovereign was in Rome in a palace. Quirinius, the governor, the leader, he was in a mansion as though it were, governor's mansion. Oh, the rulers were all in their cozy homes. And the king of glory was in a feeding trough where animals eat by his own sovereign determination. That's what's crazy. That he could have written a different story, written himself into a different and more comfortable place. What we're seeing is that you see his humility. God was at work tailor-making the Lord Jesus, not only for his kingly mission, but for his priestly mission. Because the Bible says that a high priest has to be acquainted with what you're acquainted with and what I'm acquainted with. And the Bible says he was acquainted with our weakness. He was acquainted with our sorrows. He knows what it's like to have more month at the end of the money. He knows what it's like to have no place for you to go, so you have to kind of like take it where you get it. He knows what you have to go through because life can sometimes stink. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Go down to chapter 5. It says he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Go down to 8 of chapter 5. Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. All I'm saying is the Lord Jesus is a God of humility. You might as well tack on he's a God of empathy because that's what this was preparing him for, to be able to empathize with the creation that he came to save. And we need people with empathy today, don't we? People who know what it's like. So when they legislate, people who know what it's like. So when they organize, so when they tweet, so when they post, they're thinking about now let me put myself in their shoes before I say what I say and do what I do and vote like I vote. See God in this. But you also have to see the gospel in it. 8 to 14, the gospel that comes to us. First of all, look, verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Note the scene. I just heard a sermon today on this very, I mean, not today, but uh, recently in this very text. And they rightly commented that we're used to the song, Oh, um, Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright. But you get the picture here that it's about to turn up. <laughs> it's about to turn up. <laughs> 
And so it says here, in the same region, there were shepherds. Shepherds in this day, they were viewed with disdain. The shepherds are outcasts. Shepherds, you weren't allowed to testify in court if you were a shepherd because you were automatically deemed unreliable. Shepherds were looked at as scam artists. They were looked at as, 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 and they were unwelcomed, so they would be sort of outside the community of faith. The shepherds, the shepherds were the low, they were the marginalized, they were the downcast. And yet it's to them that this good news comes first. Luke wants you to know that the gospel is for sinners, the gospel is for strangers. In chapter 19, he's going to say, for the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. God's son didn't come to sort of schmooze with the high-minded and the highbrow, but no, he came to those who are called poor in spirit. Even his family, again, poor enough that they have to be in an inn where there is no room. And now, look, he goes to shepherds who are outcasts in society. The gospel comes to us. It doesn't say that the shepherds, like the wise men, were like, where's the one who was born? I see a star. No, these people were out with their flock at night. The shepherds tended lambs, they tended sheep, and they probably were doing this because they liked to sell them for sacrifices. So here these people acquainted with lambs and sheep about to be introduced to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The gospel comes to us. The Bible says no one seeks God, no, not one. The Lord Jesus will look at you if you're in him and say, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. I shown my heart, my light in your heart. The gospel comes to us, but it also comes for us. Look what the angels say. The, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. That's the word, euangelizomai. Again, that's that gospel word. I bring you the gospel, a gospel that's here to pep you up. A gospel to give you great joy. Remember what we said? Like, this is what the world is looking for. They're always looking for something to spruce them up, to pep them up. They want a reason to party. He says, here's a reason to party. I bring you gospel. It brings great joy. And it'll be for all people, even you outsiders that nobody wants to hear. You outsiders who aren't allowed to go in court and testify because you're unreliable. You outsiders that can't get with the people of God in the temple because you're shepherds. He says, it's for all people. The most despised class has a destiny and a date with gospel presentation. Maybe you're here today and you've never heard the good news that brings joy for any and everybody who would receive it as such. Well, God brought you here because God was aiming to bring you his good news that brings great joy. Oh, look what it says. This gospel comes to us. It comes for us. Verse 11. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Notice that. He comes and he says, I come to you. You didn't come to me. Now I'll tell you that there is a Savior for you. Oh, it is true. But have you received it as for me? Now, people like to say God died for all of us. He died for us. And it's kind of a flippant kind of catch-all, like nobody told him to do that. He just did it, and it's just a blanket, like mindless, I did it. No, God is very specific in not only providing the sacrifice that's sufficient, but making the moves on people to make sure that it is effective. In other words, a sufficient sacrifice does you no good if that sacrifice is not received as your own. The Lord knows how to come down your street 
and show the glory of it all so that your heart says, that's for me. I know that I can't believe that God would do this for me. We don't use the word just for me. People say, well, just for me. It's not just for you. It's for all people. <laughs> There's an emphasis on God doing this for a number of people, quote, but they come from every stripe, every class, every race. The gospel, it comes for us. And this will be the sign you'll see. You're going to see the one he calls in verse 11, a savior in the city of David who is Christ the Lord. Oh, the Lord Jesus here is given three titles or three descriptives to let you know that this baby that you see, the baby that will look like he's not much, the baby who will have his glory tucked because it'll be in swaddling cloth, he says that baby is actually Savior, first of all. The Lord Jesus is a rescuer. The Lord Jesus comes without an S on his chest and without a cape. He comes and he saves. Oh, it's good that Jesus grew up to be a preacher, a teacher, a healer, a feeder. Uh, it's good that he was all of that. He was a carpenter at one time. Again, praise God for all of those things about Jesus. But ultimately, Jesus said, I came to save and if he's a savior, that means you and I need saving. He didn't come to be a savior nobody's asking for. Nobody told you to come and save. I was all right. I had it because I was just going to look at the law and do better. He comes because who he is defines who we are. If he's a savior, we need saving. He says, this is a savior who is Christ. Christ, we already said it, from you would come a son of David that's greater than David. From you would come a Messiah, a Mashiach, or somebody I choose for myself who will be a ruler of my people. And it says that he'll rule the nations with a rod of iron. Oh, the one who was in a bed in a manger, the one who had to be swaddled to keep his bones straight so that they would grow strong and straight. The one who needed someone to burp him, the one that needed someone to change his diaper, the one that needed someone to say, oh, you need to change that outfit. He, he's dribbled on his onesie. He was the one who says, I am the ruler of the nations. And my kingdom has no end. I don't need an insurrection to stay in power. I just am in power. And it doesn't stop. He's Christ. That's what Christ means. The Lord. Lord. This is, I'm God. I'm God. In another, volume two of Luke is Acts. That's his second volume to this. And in Acts 2, he says, let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The Savior is both Lord, God, Christ. This is why Elizabeth, his aunt, who had John the Baptist in the womb, when Mary came and she had Jesus in the womb, it says that John was like, oh. I know whose presence I'm in. I'm in the womb. He's in the womb, but I'm Lord, and he's Lord, and I'm forerunner. And, the, and Elizabeth said, now, so what brings the mother of my Lord to my house? Elizabeth knew something about the baby in the womb, that this was not just cousin Jesus, but this was Lord. Mary, when she blessed the Magnificat of Mary, she was like, my soul blessed the Lord. 
Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Do you know you're blessing Jesus when you do that? The one who was in swaddling cloth, in an animal trough, who didn't have any place to be laid. This is who he is, and that means that's who you are. You're in need of these things. So he told the shepherds, he says, listen, this will be the sign. You'll find all that glory I just told you tucked in in a manger, which is good news. Because maybe they would have thought, I cannot go looking for king who's looking kingly, looking like I look. But they stepped to the king in their humble estate because our king, even though he's the king of glory, came to us in a humble estate. And he's for all people. A Gentile would have gone to the temple and been told, stay over there. You're in the courtyard of the Gentiles. You can't come into the place where we can come. And then general Jews would have said, the priests would have said, hey, you stay there because you can't come where we Levite priests can come. And the high priest would have said, y'all stay right there. You can't come where only the high priest can come. Now this is a front row seat to the great high priest who is the temple. <laughs> who says all people come. Around this time, people honor Hanukkah, especially now the Jews, uh, in particular now the Israelites, especially blacks who are now on the Israelite thing, they go and they say, well, we're into Hanukkah, we don't mess with Christmas anymore. <laughs> Unfortunately, Hanukkah is a Jewish holiday where Jews acknowledge that Yahweh came and saved them through a man named Judas Maccabeus that a military style uh, uh, overturning got them free. In other words, that's something that Jews really honor because it's so them-focused. One of the reasons why Christmas is so universally embraced is because it's where Christ makes it clear, yes, I came to save Israel, my people, but yes, I came to save all people. I'm almost finished. You got to see God in this. You have to see the gospel in this. Then you got to see the glory of it. And I'm finished. Verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven. Oh, no, no, no. Back up. Back up. And suddenly, verse 13. There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts. Praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. In other words, the shepherds were out there hearing about Christ, and God said, perhaps you didn't hear me. Perhaps you need a background, some soundtrack to go with this glorious moment. It's too quiet here. It's too sedated here. Y'all are not enough. Because maybe the shepherds were like, I, I like it. A savior for all people, even people like us. God says, let me help you out. And he just brought in theme music, a choir. It says all of a sudden, a multitude of heavenly hosts came and God brought out the choir. The choir said, let us join in and say glory to God in the highest. Oh, and peace on earth 
to people like you because his favor has come your direction. Oh, the angels were like, we, we kept trying to see. Uh, we were all up over the people's shoulders. We said, the spirit of God was talking about, I'm writing this through my prophets and I'm writing this through my apostles. And we kept saying, but who are you talking about? But when are you talking about? But what is it going to look like? What you up to? I don't understand this. You just send me out to do stuff for people and you send me back and you make me go and get in fights and I come back and you have prayers. I have to bring those prayers to you. And the angels are like, what's going on? What are you doing? And then when they saw it, that God himself, the one that they had circled the throne and said, holy, 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 the Lord God almighty, whose train fills the temple, one that they know we got to cover up. He's so glorious. Now they're looking like what? He's going to be tucked. That glory is going to be wrapped in a human frame? The Bible says, Psalm 8, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. How is it that he's going to be lower than us? How? The angels are like, how are you going to have God made lower than us for a little while? What is man that you're mindful of him, Psalm 8? What is son of man that you even think about him? Oh, and then they went, they said, sing glory to God in the highest. And on earth among those with whom he's pleased. So you got to see the glory of it. So let's end with this. The glory must be a perceived glory. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. In other words, they went and they saw everything exactly as, uh, as the angel had said. And they went and they said, oh, my goodness. And they were still flying high off that choir scene that they had. And they perceived the glory there now they were able to look at a baby in a manger that was with that glory tuck and still see the glory there you see the world doesn't see glory in the baby they see cuteness they don't see glory in the rabbi they see wisdom they see intelligence and they don't see glory on the cross for certain they see a person who comes to the end of the line and says well it was good while it lasted but they saw the glory Christ the Savior who is Lord and when they went they saw him tucked with his glory they saw Jesus one time in the Spirit of God the Lord Jesus said this in Luke chapter 10 21 to 22 says he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit I'm almost finished I thank you father Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children yes father for such was your gracious will Oh, you ought to ask God, God, let me see. Open the eyes of my heart, let me see. Let me see Jesus better. I've grown up in a Christian home. Jesus is cool. My parents are into him, but help me to see Jesus as glorious. Look what Jesus says, verse 22 of 10. All things have been handed over to me by my father, and no one knows the son except the father, or who the father is except the son, and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Say, God, reveal the son to me, because the son is the only one who can reveal the father to me. Father, reveal Christ to me, because he's the only one who can reveal you to me. That glory proceeds then that glory gets proclaimed when you see it right, 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherd told them. 
But Mary treasured up all these things, pondered them in her heart. Some people sat and they were wondering what's going on. Other people were lost in the wonder of what was going on. What are you, where are you at today? You may be saying, I see him up there breaking a sweat. He said he's, he's finished, but he hasn't finished yet. Uh, there, we have reservations. All I'm saying is sit and be lost in the wonder of who he is. But perhaps you're just sitting and wondering who he is. Well, look, he is Christ. The Lord, the God who entered human history for this purpose. So you see the glory proclaimed. Now the glory and the praise. And the shepherds returned, glorifying, praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it has been told them. Three times it emphasizes what they had seen. They saw the angel at Jalic Choir. They saw the baby in the manger. And they saw the wonder of people. When you know Jesus, you preach him. If you've had this encounter, of course, we haven't seen the actual incarnate Christ. But first Peter says you haven't seen him and yet you love him. So in conclusion, Timothy wrote this. In 1 Timothy 3.16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. He took on a body in humanity. He was vindicated by the spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among ATL and the nations. He was believed on in the world. He was taken up in glory. Can we join that chorus? Can we join the chorus of those who know that he came in the flesh? And that because he rose, he was vindicated by the spirit. He didn't die because he did something wrong. He died because he willingly laid his life down. He was seen by angels because when he went back, he said, I told you. (laughs) Proclaimed among the nations. That's what we do now. Great commission. So he can be believed on by your family and your friends in this world that's going to hell in a handbasket. He was taken up the glory. So he says, and so you'll be with me. Charles Wesley, the brother of John Wesley, and I conclude for real. I love that line. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, our God with us. Hark the herald angels. Hark the herald believers today. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.